When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In Nevada, you don't even see lines this long for slot machines. The lead starts right now. Democrats hungry to vote, showing a surge of enthusiasm and hoping the system doesn't unravel like it did in Iowa. As the candidates focus on a much more diverse group of voters in Nevada, they're telling the attorney general to quit for the good of the country. More than 2,000 people who worked at the DOJ blasting Bill Barr after he went easy on President Trump's former consigliere. Plus, hundreds of Americans now back in the U.S. freed after being trapped on a cruise ship contaminated with the coronavirus. But not all of them made it out healthy. Welcome to a special edition of The Lead. I'm Dana Bash in for Jake. And we begin with the 2020 lead on this President's Day. This week is the third Democratic presidential contest of the year. And right now, early voting is taking place in Nevada, with some 26,000 people already turning out over the weekend. As CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports, Senator Bernie Sanders is looking to Nevada to cement his frontrunner status, and his opponents are training their attacks on the Vermont senator. With your help, we're going to win here in Nevada. The fight is on for Nevada. It is so wonderful to be out of the snow and in this beautiful, sunny state of Nevada. The first 2020 Democratic contest in the West. I know that people in Nevada are taking your responsibility, your influence, your power, that thumb on the scale that you have so seriously. Five days before the state's caucuses, early voting is already underway in the most diverse test yet for the Democratic field. Front and center is a familiar debate over health care, but with a new twist. The state's powerful culinary workers union strongly opposes Medicare for all, saying abolishing private insurance would take away their hard-fought health insurance plans. It's one of the biggest challenges facing Bernie Sanders, whose support for Medicare for all is at the heart of his candidacy. His rivals are trying to capitalize on the divide, hoping to slow his surge. No one should be able to tell them they can no longer have that plan. And I'll be damned if we're going to erase the union's efforts. Joe Biden is trying to revive his campaign in Nevada after lackluster showings in Iowa and New Hampshire. 99.9% of the African-American community has voted yet, and 99.8% of the Hispanic community and Latino community has voted yet. A turnaround is coming. One candidate not competing here is still hanging over the race. Former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg. His Democratic rivals are piling on the self-funded billionaire. The simple truth is that Mayor Bloomberg, with all his money, will not create the kind of excitement and energy we need to have the voter turnout we must have to defeat Donald Trump. Bloomberg is one qualifying poll away from joining his fellow Democrats on stage for the first time at a debate this week in Las Vegas. Yeah, I think he should be on the debate stage because I can't beat him on the airwaves, but I can beat him on the debate stage. 
And we will find out if Mayor Bloomberg is on that debate stage. The deadline is tomorrow night at midnight to see if he qualifies for that. So uh, his aides tell me he is planning to be on the stage. So we'll see if he makes that. But Dan, as for Bernie Sanders, there is a sense his campaign certainly is strong. He ran here four years ago, but he's not in Nevada today. He's having a rally in California. He, like others, are looking ahead to Super Tuesday. Of course, they'll be coming back here, Dana, but is that early voting that's underway right now, 24 more hours of it. A lot of worry here in the sense of Nevada, how that vote is going to go. So a sense of uh, the mechanics of the election as well as who's leading. Dana? Jeff, thank you so much for that report. Appreciate it. And we're here uh, with our panel. Let's talk about the Bernie Sanders uh, front runner status that he has right now, generally, which he is trying to cement in Nevada. Um, as somebody who was on the other side of him <laughs> four years yeah. ago, uh, when you look at this and what he's doing now, I mean, people shouldn't underestimate him. Absolutely not. I mean, he is a very strong competitor. He is, while Buttigieg is pretty close behind in the, in the count so far, he has a very enthusiastic base of support. He is a very good organizer. He's, and he's also got the benefit. He's been through Nevada before. So he know he and his team know a lot about how to organize there. And now that they've had, you know, they've expanded access. I think they had something like 26,000 people already who've early voted. I mean, they're, Nevada's on track to actually exceed turnout from 2016. And I have every confidence that Senator Sanders' team knows exactly where their votes are and how to get those people out. Mm-hmm. You're also seeing the Democratic <clears throat> moderates and centrists really start to ramp up their attacks on Sanders, which they hadn't really done before. They were mostly turning their fire on each other, especially in New Hampshire. And so Bernie Sanders had the benefit of being able to sit back, let them attack each other. Um, The question is, though, is it a little bit too late now? You know, there's some people who are saying he might be too much of a force to stop at this point. I think it's worth recognizing that occasionally when we talk about Sanders, we talk about him as someone who needs to be challenged, not necessarily the front runner in this race. That's who he is right now. And I think until someone can challenge him, we're seeing efforts by Bloomberg, by Buttigieg and a bunch of others. That's who the front runner in this race is. That's who we should be starting to think about what the nomination process is going to look like later this year. Yeah. And, and you know, you talked about the fact that when you talked about the moderates kind of hitting each other, trying to kind of one up one another in that lane uh, for a while. But what I'm hearing from some people in those camps now is that, well, wait a second. If you know, we, we've got the moderate vote splint, splintered right now in a way that Bernie Sanders doesn't so much. I mean, Elizabeth Warren is still in the race. She's Absolutely. still taking a lot of those votes, but maybe not as as many as you see on the, the sort of the counter side of the of the lane, if you will. We went through this in 2016. I was working for Jeb Bush's super PAC and we were competing in the moderate lane and everybody was worried about the unelectable extremist uh, Donald Trump. And it was in everybody's self-interest to keep fighting with each other and let him get through the through in his own lane. So that's what happened. And by the way, our whole thinking he was unelectable didn't turn out to be right. I think that if there's anything we can learn about 2016, and I've been really trying to push against Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders comparisons, because at a certain point, it's like apples and a very strange form of pineapple. But I think it's I think it's of it's really worth noting that you know, the idea of being unelectable or even our entire conversation we're having about electability, mm-hmm. it doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, and especially you're starting to see voters responding to that and they're voting not how they want to, but how they think their mm-hmm. next door neighbor is going right. to vote. And we're right. hearing a lot of, well, I don't think this way, but this person I heard of vaguely thinks this way. No, vote how you want to vote. 
But the question of electability, that went out the window in November 2016. Right. But people are de- certainly voting. I mean, it's particularly interesting. Like, African-Americans are trying to figure out who white voters will support, and white voters are trying to figure <laughs> out who African-Americans and Latinos will support. The thing about Sanders, though, he, you know, he, his, his challenge as a frontrunner is his coalition online, as Mike Bloomberg, I believe, is pointing out, is not very friendly and not very welcoming. And when you are the front runner, you have to show that you can bring together a broad coalition. Mm-hmm. The attacks on him, that down ballot races are going to be nervous about how do I defend democratic socialism? He's got to help people understand how to do that. And that's, that is an electability issue. So, okay, so you mentioned Michael Bloomberg. Um, on State of the Union yesterday, I asked Senator Amy Klobuchar about her record as a prosecutor, because as yeah. people rise, people look, OK, well, what are you all about? And they look deeper into their records. As part of her response, she mentioned Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> Listen. I was not involved in some of the uh, controversial issues uh, in other states like stop and frisk. I understand uh, that that is unconstitutional. Uh, but what I was focused on there is trying to go after crimes and making sure there's a consequence. But it does not mean that it always has to be prison time. I've got to answer questions like I just did on my record. And he has to do the same thing. I don't think you should be able to hide behind uh, airwaves and huge ad buys. So there's a lot to unpack there. There's (laughs) there's the, the, the unlimited resources that Michael Bloomberg has, which is obviously scaring his opponents. And, and two, it's the, uh, the record that he has that these, these Democratic candidates are saying it needs to be explored and he needs to be challenged on it, and, which he can't be challenged on if right. he's just putting on right. paid advertising. These one-sided ads. He hasn't been in a debate. He hasn't been asked tough questions by journalists. He hasn't been doing the Sunday news shows yet. He might be qualifying for the debate this week, um, so we'll wait and see there. Uh, but I think it's a fair point for Klobuchar that it's not fair that he hasn't been challenged or tested yet. He hasn't been vetted. Uh, one thing I will say about Bloomberg, though, is he is a counterpuncher, much like another New York billionaire we know very well. Um, so if he is on that debate stage, I do expect that if they come at him, he's going to be coming back with some tax. So candidates better be prepared to handle those. But the thing is, they've very, been very able to control their message, right? They control it by the way, by their advertising, by the answers that they're putting out, by now hiring a firm to make him a meme. Right. Who gets to do that? (laughs) So, you know, being on a debate stage, one of the things I mean, Mike Bloomberg, I was lived in New York when he became mayor. He was a decent mayor. But off the cuff, when you're, you know, going back and forth, landing a punch, taking the punches. We've seen him in some interviews have some less than good, (laughs) to put it kindly, answers. Mm. And so to see how he reacts when you don't have a lot of time to answer. And he remember, he will be starting out kind of from the beginning, whereas the rest of these guys have been going back and forth for some time. He's not going to be able to get away with, well, nobody ever talks to me about stop and frisk, but I apologize. I think it's interesting, though, that there's so much of this that we think that in order to beat Trump, we have to come up with our own version of Trump. And I think that Bloomberg, that's the theory here. Mm. Yeah, well, it is. And I want to say for the record, if I knew how to make a meme, I would do it for you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're going to take a quick break. The Nevada Democratic Party is hoping their caucus gamble pays off and they avoid an Iowa-like fiasco. But there are already concerns. Then as hundreds of Americans return home from quarantine overseas, word they might end up doubling the number of confirmed coronavirus cases in the U.S. Easy for me to say. (laughs) 
In our 2020 lead, the caucuses aren't until Saturday, but Nevada is already facing voting issues. Volunteers are sounding the alarm, saying they don't feel prepared to use the new technology to gather votes. Early voters this weekend waited in line for hours, and caucus workers struggled with tech problems, all raising fears that Nevada is another Iowa-grade disaster in the making. CNN's Diane Gallagher joins me now. So, Diane, what are the volunteers saying the issues are? Yeah, and Dan, the reason why so many of these volunteers are speaking out to us is because they do want to avoid being, in their words, another Iowa. Their biggest concern is those early votes that are happening now, how exactly they're going to be transmitted to their precincts on caucus day. Early voting is new in Nevada, and they are not completely familiar with this calculator tool that they're expected to use. Now, we've talked to volunteers who say they haven't seen anything about it. They've been asking the party for more information, had just been told to basically wait, we're going to get to you, don't worry about a thing. We actually observed a training session today and saw screen grabs of what the calculator uh, looks like. They were told kind of how to go through it, but we haven't spoken to any volunteers at all who have actually given this thing a trial run. They're concerned. The party has said they are training volunteers right now on this, Dana, uh, but again, the concern by these volunteers is that they may be waiting until right before caucus day before they learn about something they're expected to use. So you mentioned that the party is trying to ease concerns. How are they doing that? How are they trying to get ahead of it? So they're projecting confidence at this point. The party has said over and over again that we are working to make sure that this is a very uh, transparent process. We're working to make sure that this is a simple and successful process and that we will be ready. But I can tell you from talking to campaigns and talking to volunteers, Dana, there was a lot of there was a lot of uncertainty about that as we get closer to the caucus day. Uh, They were willing to give the Nevada Democrats cut them some slack when they had to get rid of those apps but now they want answers and they want them now. Which is understandable. Thank you so much, Diane. Appreciate that reporting. Uh, I'm back with our panel. Uh, You know, just want to go to a quote that really struck us from Politico. After a two-hour training session, uh, somebody said that the caucus will be a complete disaster. This is a volunteer there, especially after Iowa. So, why is this happening? Uh, Karen, I'm going to ask you, since sure. you're the only uh, former uh, DNC staffer at the table that I know of. Um, sure. But you also you have the perspective of the, from inside the DNC, but also the campaign. Sure. You know how this works. Explain why all the problems. So I actually have a lot more confidence in what's happening in Nevada right now than why? that particular person. Well, first of all, they have the benefit of seeing what happened in Iowa. They're not using that app. My understanding is quite literally it's the calculator on an iPad. One of the big mistakes that they had in Iowa was actually human error and bad math. So the thought was, let's give people a calculator to help them do better counting. No technology is going to be used to actually transmit votes. It's all going to, and they have all sorts of redundancies in the system to try to make sure that that doesn't happen. And they're doing early vote, which means if there are problems, they're finding out about them now and they will and be prepared. The early vote ends on the 18th. Mm-hmm. The caucus itself is on the 22nd. Look, the second side of it is as a person in it, from a campaign perspective, you know that all the campaigns will be on their game, making sure or at least they should be having their volunteers ready and prepared so that they have their own data so that if there are any problems, again, there are redundancies and the ability to bring that forward and compare the data. 
Listen to, oh God, what were you going to say? As a former RNC counsel, yes. <laughs> what's been remarkable to me is the lack of support the DNC has provided at state parties. Watching Tom Perez hang out to dry, the Iowa state party chair was something that I would have never seen a national chair do. And I think Nevada has kind of done this to themselves. They've added rank order voting in. And ranked choice voting is incredibly confusing. And then to have a brand new app trying to calculate that. They're not using an app. They're not using an app in Nevada. They're using a calculator. I'm sorry. The brand new calculator trying to do no, ranked choice new, voting. It's, it's an iPad calculator. and a yeah. Google. It's, right, it's a calculator. So okay, let's well, just be clear. And there are DNC staffers out there trying to help. However you try to figure that out, you're going to end up with the same thing you had in Iowa, where you had Bernie Sanders claiming he won the popular vote. And whoever wins the first vote is going to claim they won. And there's going to be a lot of confusion once they start hitting down to the second choice. At the end of the day, it's about delegates. So, Well, it is about delegates. And, and at a certain point, you do get delegates. But you know this better than most. At the early stages, it's about delegates, but it's about momentum. And it's about claiming the win, Absolutely. getting the W on the board, which brings in lots of money, which brings in volunteers, so on and so forth, which Pete Buttigieg didn't get as he got a bump, but he could have gotten, you know, by everybody's standards, a lot bigger bump had he had a traditional Iowa win. Right. And Iowa is actually just starting their re-canvas process now. It could take a few days, but I don't think, at least in the short term, it's going to matter. Maybe he picks up a delegate. Maybe he loses a mm-hmm. delegate. But he was robbed, as you said, of that early momentum. However, we don't know how the delegate fight will play out in the long term. Maybe it could come down to the wire. So every delegate does matter. I think it's been funny to kind of watch this process um, a little bit more from a more removed status because it seems to me that a lot of the momentum is how the campaigns spin it. Let's be honest, because there, you, you, know, you can win and lose and lose and win, and we have seen that happen already with Iowa. And so I think that the results that will come out of Nevada, I'm especially interested in because it's going to be the most diverse electorate that we've mm-hmm. heard, so far, heard from so far. Um, you know, Iowa and New Hampshire are not exactly mirroring the electorate in 2020 in America. But I think it will be interesting to see not necessarily what the results are, but how the campaigns think about those. You know, you mentioned that Sanders is already in California. Mm-hmm. A lot of campaigns are already starting to think ahead to Super Tuesday because that, I think, for Biden is where he sees a real chance for him to leap back in front in this race because he already is in front in some southern states as well. And so I think it's important to remember that, like, the, how the campaigns think about Nevada is almost as important as what actually happens in Nevada. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. OK, everybody stand by. Uh, you should tune in to CNN tomorrow night and Thursday night, talk, speaking of Nevada. Five town halls there. Sanders, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, Biden and Warren all making their case to voters ahead of the next critical vote. It all starts at 8 p.m. Eastern right here, only on CNN. And next, it's not exactly a love letter. Over 2,000 former federal prosecutors and Justice Department officials send a public list of demands to Bill Barr and the DOJ. What they want? That's next. The politics lead. They want him out. Now it's more than 2,000 former DOJ officials demanding Attorney General Bill Barr resign. They've signed a petition calling Barr's history of political interference a grave threat to justice. Their tipping point? Barr overruling prosecutors in the Roger Stone case. CNN's Caitlin Collins has the complaints from these DOJ alums. Thank you, Mr. President. Attorney General Bill Barr is now facing more scrutiny after a week that strained his relationship with the Justice Department rank and file and an interview that threatened to upend his standing with the president. 
I know people who are trying to bully Bill Barr out of his job. More than 2,000 former federal prosecutors and Justice Department officials are calling on him to resign after he intervened to reduce Roger Stone's sentencing recommendation. Officials from both Republican and Democratic administrations have signed an open letter calling Barr's actions unheard of and outrageous, including the deputy attorney general from George H.W. Bush's White House. Stone is a close confidant of Trump's and is set to be sentenced this week after he was convicted on seven counts, including lying to Congress and witness tampering. Barr denied talking about the case with the president. I have not discussed the Roger Stone case at the White House. But comments like this from Trump have done little to combat allegations of political influence. Roger Stone was treated horribly. I want to thank the Justice Department. Trump is spending President's Day behind closed doors after a weekend in Florida where he headlined the priciest fundraiser of his presidency at the home of billionaire Nelson Peltz and acted as Grand Marshal at the Daytona 500. Gentlemen, start your engines. His campaign manager was forced to delete a tweet after he posted a photo of Air Force One flying over the racetrack from when President George W. Bush visited in 2004. Brad Parscale later tweeted a photo of Trump's Air Force One arrival in Daytona. Trump ended the weekend in Washington attending the wedding of his senior advisor, Stephen Miller, and Vice President Pence's press secretary, Katie Waldman, at his hotel in Washington. Now, Dana, the president is behind closed doors today, but we are expecting to hear from his former national security advisor, John Bolton, who's slated to make a speech at Duke University here in the next hour. One of two appearances he's scheduled to have this week. And while he's not expected to address impeachment in those remarks, he is slated to take questions. So we'll be waiting to see what he says, though we should note he still has not commented publicly on all of these events surrounding Ukraine yet. It'll be coming up with the book uh, next month. Uh, Caitlin, thank you so much. Appreciate it. And joining me now is Preet Bharara, the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Preet, thank you so much for joining me on this President's Day. So you didn't sign on to that letter, but tell me how significant a statement this is. Yeah, so I agree with the sentiments expressed in the letter. I didn't sign it. I tend not to sign letters uh, that other people have written. I can express myself here and in other places. I have, a, a, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have a platform to do that. Look, 2,000 is a lot, and the number is going up. And there are people who serve both in the Democratic, uh, when they're Democratic presidents and Republican presidents. And I will tell you, just from my talking with people who are inside and outside the department, but especially outside the department, over the last week, what they have seen in the last number of days has alarmed them more than anything else that has gone on before. I mean, what you have here is, is not just two-tier justice or a double standard of justice, but a specialized, unique kind of justice just for, for one person in the country, Donald Trump. And that, I think, rightly makes people very upset and makes people worry about the fitness of Attorney General Barr for the job. Do you understand the politics of, of, of the moment? And it, there's no indication that the Attorney General is going to step down. So short of that, is there anything that can be done, given the grievances that you're hearing, to review his actions within the government? Well, there's this thing called Congress, um, which just concluded an impeachment proceeding that went a certain way in the House and a different way in the Senate. Uh, there are certainly oversight hearings that can happen. The attorney general has apparently dis agreed to come testify before Congress at the end of March. I think there's a lot of tough questions that should be asked. In the letter that you refer to, mm -hmm. what's, what's interesting about that letter is there's a call to the professional career people in the department to come forward if and when they hear word that these kinds of things are happening. If they're being uh, forced to do things that are against their conscience or against their oath 
or in favor of one side or the other that's not equal before the law, they're being asked to come forward. So that's another way that you might have a check on the attorney general also. So there's been a lot of kind of, you know, yeah, but, you know, they did this, they did that um, kind of statements from uh, Trump administration officials. But so let me ask you this. You were a U.S. attorney when you had that job or any job in government in the Justice Department in particular. Did the attorney general, then Eric Holder or uh, Loretta Lynch, did they involve themselves in any of the cases you were prosecuting? Oh, yeah, no, sure. There are cases of of very significant national importance. We charge a lot of huge cases, including terrorism cases, including multi-billion dollar settlements with banks and with auto companies. Mm -hmm. Um, So so there was a basis for people to be advised, and we would let folks know about the things that were going on. But I never once ever, ever, ever saw or heard of a case where at the last minute the Attorney General of the United States would sweep down and intervene and overrule a, a consensus decision that we made in a case that involved a confidant, former advisor of the sitting president of the United States. That's unheard of. That's what people are complaining about. Not the fact that there's some back and forth between the attorney general and prosecutor's offices. That's normal, and it happens all the time. So listen to what the vice president's chief of staff, Mark Short, said to me defending Barr and President Trump yesterday. I think that the, the president's frustration is one that a lot of Americans have, which feels like the... the the scales of justice are not balanced anymore. The reality is that Barr is being independent. He, he did come into this decision but, on his own. It was not something he was influenced by by the president. What's your reaction to that as somebody who served uh, yeah. with lots of career prosecutors? Well, that's hard to swallow because you're talking about a particular decision made by the attorney general about a confidant advisor of the president who, by the way, was convicted of a crime that related to the campaign of that president. So you can't get a closer connection between the president and one of a small number of criminal defendants in this country out of tens and tens of thousands that the attorney general decides to come in on after the president makes it clear that he didn't like the prosecution, he doesn't like the sentencing recommendation, and tweeted about it. Whether or not he had an independent uh, conclusion about what the sentence should be, to come in then um, looks shabby. It looks shabby and it looks unethical, uh, which is different from saying that the seven to nine years is appropriate. I've said publicly a number of times, it seems a little bit high to me. The question is not whether or not seven to nine years was an appropriate recommendation. People can differ about that. The question is, this is a former advisor and friend of the president of the United States with respect to whom the attorney general uniquely came in to try to get leniency on his part. That cannot stand. So let me ask you uh, real quick about the judge uh, overseeing the Stone case. Amy Berman Jackson is set to sentence Stone this week. She has called a conference with the attorneys tomorrow. What do you read into that? Do you read anything into it, given so, all of the ex- exterior uh, and external uh, issues surrounding this? Yeah. So, you know, the four lawyers who were assigned to the case of Roger Stone on the government side have all withdrawn from the case pretty dramatically. One of them has resigned from the department completely. And so I have suggested and others have suggested that it may be that the judge would want to find out uh, and probe behind those withdrawals and ask, well, what's the reason for this? What's the discomfort that you have What's the case going forward? Who's going to be representing the government? I looked at the very short order. It's a little bit cryptic. It says counsel for the parties must uh, appear. Unclear to me that all the four attorneys who have withdrawn and asked for permission to withdraw, I should say, uh, will be present. I hope and expect that she will ask questions about the nature of the withdrawal and and why the change uh, in in the sentencing recommendation. Mm -hmm. It's within her power, and I hope she does that. And real quick, she, she has the power to do the sentencing. 
um, regardless yeah, of the recommendation. Correct. It's all up to her. There was once upon a time when the sentencing guidelines were mandatory. They're now only advisory, which is another odd thing for the attorney general to, to have weighed in on. The prosecutors make a recommendation. Judges frequently ignore it and do what they want. Great. Barrara, always good to see you and get your insights. Thanks. Thank you Happy so much. Happy President's Day. <laughs> you too. And a campaign ad that some say could define the state of the Republican Party. That's next. It's the attorney general's responsibility to enforce the law even-handedly and with integrity. The attorney general must ensure that the administration of justice, the enforcement of the law, is above and away from politics. Oh, how times have changed. Yep, that was Bill Barr when he was up for attorney general the first time under George H.W. Bush. A White House official says that the president still has confidence in Bill Barr, despite the now more than 2,000 calls for him to resign from former DOJ officials. That's what really matters here, right? Um, the president's <laughs> opinion, because he's the guy in charge. So this is my question for you. <laughs> This hand-wringing about politicization is really disingenuous. They're, every attorney general is politicized. It's just that with the Obama administration, they were much more sophisticated in how they talked about it. I represent dozens of nonprofit organizations. We all remember when they discriminated against them, and the Obama Department of Justice, with Eric Holder, wouldn't give nonprofit organization exemptions specifically to conservative organizations. The difference between then is now is that they did it with a wink and a nod and President Trump's doing it with a tweet. But isn't there, you go ahead. I was just going to say, I feel like there's more to that story <laughs> that I well, wish I could. Well, what I was going to say is I don't want to, you know, relitigate what happened in the Obama years, but I think the big picture question is, isn't there a major difference between anything that happened in the Obama two terms and what we're talking about now, which is the president's you know, consigliere, somebody who he has worked with for decades, being up for sentencing and the president with a tweet getting involved. It's, a, it's personal. It's not about policy. Especially since it's, this is coming from the same Bill Barr, who that same day gave a speech that morning talking about how progressive district attorneys are sentencing or are, are being too lenient in sentencing. And I think that that's the message that you're hearing from a lot of people who are supportive of criminal justice reform efforts, both Republicans and Democrats, which I think is important to remember, is that this is, you know, we already have, you've heard some conservatives talking about how, oh, this shows we have a two-tiered justice system. I think Khalif Browder could speak more to a two-tiered justice system than Roger Stone could. And I think that that's the sense that I think a lot of people are objecting to is not so much, you know, the president has every right to have a supportive uh, attorney general. There was kind of talk of Eric Holder being his wingman during the Obama years. But I think that the extreme dichotomy between protecting Roger Stone and being at, you know, totally opposed to changing sentencing guidelines for low-level offenders is what's really getting people now. Have you followed the Step Act? Yes, the first I mean, Step Act, President which I think Trump has done sentencing reform. And then the, I some, some, a lot of those Roger Stone. a lot of those sentences have but, been you but know, the president been some rejection. Right. There. I don't care just... about him, but I would argue that systemically discriminating against free speech with political organizations is worse than one crazy buddy. Well, but okay. it's not but, but one crazy story, buddy. But that story is more complicated than I think you're representing it to be. Having come from the Clinton administration, I mean, one of the differences that I see is Janet Reno was very independent on many occasions from Bill Clinton. God knows there's plenty of things she did. He didn't love, right? But she stayed in office. There was never a threat. There was never a, 
you know, any kind of suspicion that she could be fired for doing what she thought was right. And there were similarly times in the Obama administration when uh, Eric Holder was at odds with many in the inside the White House. And so the point is, Bill Barr is not in any way, shape or form independent from this president. I don't think we will ever see him take a step that this president doesn't like. And it started so when the Mueller report came out and he presented us with a two page summary that had four real sentences in it. And everybody sort of jumped and decided that that was the truth. And then we saw the so report this is, and realized it wasn't. So this is about fealty to the president in within his own administration including and especially the Justice Department, which historically has been a bit more independent. Let's talk about that in the context of the Republican Party and the elected officials. You have to see this ad that is now out by Bradley Byrne, who's running for Senate in the Republican primary in Alabama. And he's basically saying to Jeff Sessions, who's his opponent down there, was the president's attorney general, you didn't protect him enough. Jeff Sessions? He let the president down and got fired. And Hillary still ain't in jail. What about you, Bradley? 97% pro-Trump voting record. <laughs> I mean, that's if you yeah, want right. to look where the Republican Party is, that's exhibit A, B, and C. And especially in Alabama. Right. Let's keep in mind that this is a contest <laughs> taking place among Republicans in Alabama, which also involves you know Tommy Tuberville, who talks a lot about Sharia law, but couldn't get a drive started when he needed it when he was Auburn's football coach. Let's not forget <laughs> about that. But I think that there, there's a real sense that within the Republican Party, it's important to remember that Trump has much higher, you know, approval ratings with Republicans than any member of Congress. So mm -hmm. it's not, you know, there was a lot of talk, I think, before uh, Trump took office that he might move the, you know, he might move closer to the Republican Party. The Republican Party has moved far closer and surrounded him. And I think, you know, for Republicans, and I think that, you know, especially because Trump is acting in ways that they, you know, he's become more Mitch McConnell-esque than I think Mitch McConnell has become more populist. But it, so I think it works for them. But this is what Republicans want right now. And I think Bradley Burns trying to respond to that. I was just going to say, Jeff Sessions was the OG Trump. He was Trump before Trump. He was a beloved figure on the right. Um, it's just remarkable, you know, the turnaround that we've seen. That's true. All right. Is Hillary Clinton going to get to get a little money off all the money they're making off of her, I tell you? All right. We can talk about that in the break. Everybody stand by. A bittersweet homecoming. Hundreds of Americans returned to the U.S. after weeks of quarantine overseas. But up next, why they still might be stuck together. In our health lead, more than 300 Americans from that quarantined cruise ship in Japan are back in the United States and facing another two weeks of quarantine. They have sent over a dozen emails assuring us that there would not be an additional quarantine. And they just told us that we'd be re-quarantined for 14 more days. I've just lost a whole month of my life. Fourteen of those Americans have tested positive for the novel coronavirus. And as CNN's Ryan Young reports, they'll join other American evacuees at bases in Texas, California and Nebraska. Hundreds of Americans back on U.S. soil today after spending nearly two weeks quarantined on a cruise ship in Japan. More than 300 U.S. citizens and their family members landing at Air Force bases in California and Texas. There's been a lot of silence on this, and now we know the silence has been putting together a brilliant plan. The journey, no small feat. The buses are starting to line up. In the 10 hours it took passengers to disembark and make their way to the airport, 
U.S. officials learned that 14 of them had tested positive for the coronavirus. We don't do this every day, obviously, but... (laughs) The State Department making the rare decision to allow them to board the flights anyway. Now, after 12 days under mandatory quarantine aboard the cruise ship, these evacuees will have to start the quarantine process all over again at the bases. They just told us that we'd be re-quarantined for 14 more days. I've just lost a whole month of my life. There are 15 cases of the coronavirus confirmed in the U.S., and so far officials aren't adding the 14 passengers who tested positive to that count. In the past 24 hours, China has reported 2,051 new cases. The virus not slowing down. Nearly half the population of China, 780 million people living under some form of travel restrictions or self-quarantine as authorities try to contain the virus. Streets still empty well after the Lunar New Year holiday. More than 71,000 people have been infected around the world, the vast majority of cases in China. The first death from the virus in Europe, confirmed in France over the weekend. The majority of cases outside China have a direct link still back to China. While officials warn against calling the virus a pandemic, they recognize its end is not yet in sight. The risk is high that the disease may spread further. And I think at face value, that is true. Air Force officials actually tell us last night's plane brought 145 passengers here to the base. That brings their total to about 235, all facing quarantine. One other number to think about. We've been told that 140 uh, travelers have been denied access to the United States because of the coronavirus travel ban. Hmm. Ryan, thank you so much for that report. We're going to take a quick break. And up next, a very different kind of story. Good news for wine drinkers that they can definitely toast to. In our muddy lead, good news for wine enthusiasts. Prices are expected to be the cheapest in five years, thanks in part to a surplus of California grapes and a decreased demand for wine. For the first time in 25 years, more Americans are drinking liquor and ready-to-drink cocktails instead of a glass of vino. That could translate to cheaper wine prices for up to three years. Cheers to that. Thank you so much for watching this special edition of The Lead. I'm Dana Bash in for Jake Tapper. Follow me on Twitter at Dana Bash CNN or tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.